Um, thank you, Barbara, very much for reading that. Um, let's pray as we come to think about this um, great passage. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that it um, teaches us today and is relevant today. Help us um, to hear what you're saying to us and um, help each of us to have hearts open to respond. And may you help me to speak by the power of your spirit clearly and truly. Amen. Why resist temptation? Well, Yesterday, um, like one or two people from St. Luke's, I went to a prayer breakfast at Newington Free Church. And um, um, as, as we're there, someone came round with some extra sausages and said, can I tempt you to another sausage? And I have to admit, I was tempted. But before I could give in to temptation, he seemed to have drifted away. Never mind. <laughs> we often talk about temptation these days in terms of food, don't we? Um, there's right concern about the overweight of many people and um, people, the fact we tend to eat too much. Um, and we, we talk about the need to, to um, go to slimming groups and go on diets and so on. And when we talk about temptation, more and more it's just associated with eating too much food, being tempted to have too much um, cake or too, much, too many sweets or whatever. But actually in the Bible, temptation is a much bigger and important concept. Um, if you're reading through Luke's Gospel, one of the problems in churches is that we, we tend to read little, little chunks of the Bible. Last night we had the whole of Mark's Gospel um, read to us or performed to us. Um, well, you did cut some bits out, um, and that was nice. But actually, normally we just have chunks, don't we? But if you were reading through Luke's Gospel, and uh, it's much longer than Mark's, you would find that chapter 3 is probably a bit you'd skip. There's a long list of genealogy. Um, it starts, it goes, one of his genealogies goes backwards. It starts with Jesus and goes backwards from Jesus. Um, so Joseph, who was supposed to be his father, and so on and so on and so on. And at the end, it comes to, this is just before our passage today, it says, um, the son of Enoch, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And you might think, well, Adam, the son of God? Wasn't Jesus the son of God? Well, there was a sense in which Adam was the son of God. We're told, aren't we, in, in Genesis, that he was created in God's image. Um, and so in a sense, he is a child of God, he is a son of God. But the other thing about Adam was that he was tempted and gave in to temptation. Genesis chapter 3. God given the whole of the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve to live in. It was a beautiful garden, there was lo lots of wonderful and lovely fruits. There's a tree of life there which meant they could live forever. And just one command... Don't eat from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Satan comes along and tempts Adam and Eve to take from that tree. And they give in to the temptation. And the result is disaster. They're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Um, they're cursed rather than blessed. And they're away from the tree of life. And away from a relationship with God. And the next chapter shows that things go from um, bad to worse. Um, Cain and Abel. Um, Cain gets jealous of Abel and Cain wants to bump Abel off because he's so jealous and so angry. And God says, flee from sin. It's crouching at your door. In other words, resist temptation. But Cain gives in to temptation and the results are horrendous. Abel is murdered. And again and again as we go through life, we actually see that giving in to temptation leads to disaster. 
You may know it in your own life or see it in the life of others. It's always easy to spot it in the life of others, isn't it? Now there's people that give in to the temptation to drink too much and their lives are ruined by alcoholism. Someone who's tempted to commit adultery and so destroys their marriage and their family. Or maybe the worst case we see at the moment, the temptation of someone in power to invade a neighboring country to try and control them using military might. We've seen a devastation and a disaster of someone giving into that temptation. Giving into temptation leads to disaster, and yet we all do it in small things and sadly too often in big things. It's not just about sausages. And Jesus, in this passage, resists temptation. It says in Hebrews that Jesus was tempted like we are, and yet he did not sin. Jesus was unique in that way. Somehow he managed to hold back, even though he was a human being like us, you and me. He held back from giving in to the temptation and doing what he knew was wrong. And so Jesus, because of that, was able to fully do God's will. He was able to save us. His resisting a temptation is just as important for our salvation as anything else he did. But how did he do it? Well, in the passage we just read, we see that um, Satan comes and tempts Jesus. And actually, the only words Jesus uses in this passage are he says, it is written, and then quotes from the Bible. The only words he uses are from the Bible. And we, we read this passage, and you've probably done it in Sunday school in the past, or you've heard it before, and you think, well, look, Jesus managed to come up with these nuggets of truth from the Bible. Uh, and somehow he's able to use those to resist temptation. And, and we can think about it as though oh, you need to do your memory verse. You know, that old Sunday school thing, you know, learn your memory verses. If you know the right memory verses, then you can resist temptation. And that sort of sounds a bit difficult. Sometimes it's hard to remember all those different verses, isn't it? I mean, last night I was impressed this guy had memorized the whole of Mark's gospel, but most of us, if we're lucky, can remember two or three verses. Is that really what Jesus is doing? Is that his example to us? Well, no, I think actually what's happening here is something subtly different. Yes, Jesus quotes particular verses, but all three verses he quotes are from the book of Deuteronomy. And if you know your Bible, the book of Deuteronomy is when Moses is teaching the people of Israel at the end of his life. He's about to die. Israel is about to go into the promised land. And, and as Moses looks back over the previous 40 years when Israel have, been, have come out of Egypt and have wandered through the wilderness, he, he looks at the lessons that they've learned during that time. And he makes clear what those lessons are to the people ready to go into the promised land. And actually, the words that Jesus uses are really summaries of the lessons that Israel have learnt. And it's lessons from their history, from the story of the Exodus, the story of the time through the wilderness. And Jesus now, 40 days in the wilderness, looks back on those 40 years of Israel in the wilderness and wants to learn the lessons so that he does not make the same mistakes that they did. And you see, the Bible set up, it's not just that we learn memory verses, it's useful though that is. The Bible is a story. And we're meant to learn from the good examples and the bad examples and the mistakes so that we can live life for God. So what, what is it that Jesus learns? Um, well, there's three temptations, and I'm hoping to go through all three of them. 
First of all, Jesus learns to listen to God, not his stomach. He says that Jesus is fasting. Um, he's there in the wilderness. He's not eating at all for 40 days, and um, he's probably quite hungry. I mean, if some, some, of you, some of us, it's 40 minutes, and we're quite hungry, aren't we? Um, but he knows this is what God wants him to do. And as the devil comes along to him, and the devil says to him, you're the son of God, you're special, you deserve to have whatever he wants. Tell this stone to turn into bread, you know you can do it. Feed your stomach. And Jesus responds with a very short phrase, isn't he? You shall not live on bread alone. But actually that, that verse comes from a longer verse. Let me read the longer verse to you, it's on the screen. Moses talking to Israel says, God humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, that sort of special bread they found in the wilderness, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, the Lord. In other words, Moses is saying, remember what God did through the wilderness? Remember how he fed you with the manna? Why did he do that? Well, obviously to give you food, but also to teach you lessons. You see, the verse isn't just a, a nugget of truth. It's, it's a reminder of a story in the Bible. And what happened in the story? We need to go back to Exodus 16. You might want to look at that later on. Um, the Israelites are complaining because they're hungry. They're in the wilderness. There's not much food around. And God says, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send this manna from heaven. Um, and you to go out and to collect enough manna for yourself and your family, and there'll be plenty for you. But don't keep it until the next day. So the people go out, they collect the manna from the, from the thing, and they have great food to eat. And then some of them think, I'm not sure it's going to be there tomorrow. I want to make sure I've got enough for tomorrow as well. So they store a little bit away. And the next day, they get up, and there's the manna for them, ready, they think, to eat. But actually, it's full of maggots. It stinks, it's smelly, it's inedible, unless you like maggots. In other words, they didn't listen to the word of God. They listened to their earthly knees, their stomachs. And then at the end of the week, God says to them, right, well, on the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, I want you to rest. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to allow you to collect twice as much manna on the day before. And this time you can keep it overnight and it will be all right. And so they go out and they collect the manna. And then the next day, they keep some overnight. And the next day... People think, oh, there might be some more manna out there. Let's go and get some more manna. Again, they do what God told them not to do, and they go out there, and there's nothing to collect. And they realize that they've wasted their time. And actually, God's angry with them for not doing what they were told to do. You see, in all of this, God was teaching them a lesson, teaching them to, that actually, you may think you know what's right. You may think you know what's best to feed yourself and to get enough food for yourself. But what's more important is listening to God's. Trusting in his word and obeying it. Listen to God, not to your stomach. And for us today, we live in a world where actually, for most of us, we've been encouraged more and more, in a sense, to listen to our stomachs or listen to our bodily desires. We're blasted with adverts, aren't we? That are saying to us, look, you want this, you desire this? Well, have it, grab it, have what you want. And we live in a world where we have plenty, and it's easy to do that. 
And so we're encouraged to do that all the time. But actually, there's a danger in that, that we're not able to resist our earthly desires. And when there comes a tension between that and what God wants, we struggle to obey God. We struggle to resist temptation. That's why it can be good in Lent to try giving something up. So you're training yourself in discipline and more able to resist the temptation just to go after whatever you want and not listen to God. But you see, Jesus was able to do that even though later on it meant him going to the cross. It meant him going through the pain that was spiritual, yes, but also very physical. The suffering of being flogged and crucified. Of doing God's will and obeying him through his death. Even though his stomach, his body would have been crying out not to do it. Jesus obeyed God and brought us salvation because he listened to God, not his stomach. Are we able to do the same? Can we ask for God's help to do the same? Can we read the Bible and see that the lessons of the Bible are that you're always better off trusting God and doing his word than just giving in to your desires? Well, Satan doesn't give up, does he? And he comes again to Jesus, and um, he says to Jesus, Look, um, I have power over the, the whole world. I have authority over all nations. I can give you glory and honor and power over all nations, Jesus, if only you worship me. And Jesus again responds with scripture. And in, in Luke, it's very brief and to the point. It says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But again, this comes from Deuteronomy. Um, and, and Moses is saying to the people there, be careful when you go into the promised land not to forget the Lord's. Remember, he's the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. And if you read through the whole of the Old Testament, there's this constant temptation of the people there to actually start worshipping the other gods, the gods of the land, because there's this sort of belief that the gods of the land of Canaan, well, they're the gods of that land, they'll help us to do well if we worship them. But what God had done in Egypt was by defeating Pharaoh by sending plagues on Pharaoh who was the most powerful person in the world of the time. No one would dare stand up to him and yet there's slaves in there but yet God sent the ten plagues forced him to let Israel go and when he chased Israel afterwards he drowned his army in the Red Sea and allowed Israel to escape through the Red Sea. God did this amazing thing, showing that he had authority, he had power over all the nations, and then he brought them into the promised land and gave them the promised land to live in. God was the one who enabled them to have a good land to live in, to be free from slavery, to be free to worship him. God had done all that. Not the gods of the land, not the false gods that the other people worshipped. And yet Israel again and again were tempted to follow these other gods because that's what everyone else did and that's what everyone else thought would make you do well. And you see, when Satan says to Jesus, um, I have power over the whole world, in a sense he's right. The rest of the Bible sometimes talks about Satan being the prince of the world. And he's right because people listen to Satan. People give in to temptation. And yet he's only half right. 
was usually the case with Satan. Because actually, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world belongs to God. He has the ultimate control. He has the eternal control. Satan may win temporary battles, but he one day will be thrown into the fire of hell, fire of hell and destroyed. You look at the Old Testament again and again, the people of Israel learnt that lesson. And we need to learn the lesson too. And so today, there's temptation, isn't there, to, to follow one ideology or another ideology, to go on one side of the culture wars or another side of the culture wars, to, to fit in with the people around us, to, to believe the same things as the people around us. In a sense, to worship other gods. And we do that because we know it's because we, we think they know best. Sometimes they think they seem to be successful. We do it because we're afraid to stand out. But actually, if we learn the lesson of the Bible, the truth is that following God and His ways, standing out from the world, is the only way to ultimately win. And that's what Jesus did, isn't it? Jesus faced with the authorities in the temple that seemed to have the power in the religious authority of his day and be in charge of the culture of his, of his time and his people. Jesus was incredibly critical of them for the things they were doing wrong, even though they had so much power, it seemed, over him. And when Jesus was handed over to the Romans, he allowed himself to be crucified by the Romans, the ones who seemed to have that military power of the day, the ones who seemed to be in control in the day, he allowed himself to be crucified by them. And as Jesus died on the cross, the people looking around sort of seemed to think, this shows that Jesus has no power. This shows that Rome's in charge. This shows that the people in the temple authorities are in charge. This shows we should follow them and not Jesus. And yet on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead showing that actually his kingdom is the eternal kingdom. His kingdom is the one that will last. And although Satan offered to give Jesus all the nations of the world and all the glory of the world, now, 2,000 years later, there are people in every nation and every part of the world that are worshipping Jesus. His kingdom is an international kingdom. His kingdom is a universal kingdom. And his kingdom will be the one that lasts. And the Romans and the Jewish temple, they're gone. Will we learn the lessons of the Bible? Will we follow the example of Jesus and submit to God and not to others? But the devil doesn't give up. There's a third and final temptation. And this one, the devil uses scripture. He actually uses a psalm that we said, said together earlier on, a bit of it. And he seems to have a clever biblical argument. Sometimes just because people are speaking from the Bible doesn't mean they're speaking truth. People distort the Bible. You know, those phrases like, um, a text out of context is a con. Um, I remember seeing an old Eden comedy, and there was a sort of um, someone quoting to a vicar there, quoted two verses in a row next to him. Judas went forth and hung himself, and then he quoted, go and do likewise. Of course, that's a con, isn't it? It's a twisting scripture. It wasn't very subtle. <laughs> Satan is much more subtle. We need to know the Bible as a whole and the thrust of the Bible as a whole so we're not manipulated by false teaching. 
But what does, Moses, um, what does Satan do here? He comes to Jesus and says, look, look, Jesus, you're the son of God. Um, why don't you check out whether God will really protect you? Throw yourself off the temple height buildings and see if that psalm is true, that the angels will protect you from hitting your feet on the ground. And Jesus answers, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, this is a quote from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6.16, where it says more fully, do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. It's another story from the Bible. Exodus chapter 17 this time. Israel come out into the wilderness. Um, this time is not so much hunger, it's first that the problem is. And um, they complain to Moses, and um, God says to Moses, take your stick, hit, hit a rock. So Moses does it, and water comes out. But it says there, here is when the people of Israel were questioning, is God among us or not? Is God really with us? You see, they got into a difficult position. They got into the wilderness. They were feeling first day, and they suddenly began to think, well, is God really here? How do we know he's really here? What's really happening? And they grumbled. It was seen as a testing of God. And when you think about it, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Because they've just been through God rescuing them from Egypt, the plagues, the Red Sea, and everything else. How could they not trust that God would look after them and care for them. And you see, the devil sometimes wants us to think we can test God. We should try and make sure God is on our side in some way. He'll manipulate things and say, well, why hasn't God answered that prayer? Why hasn't God made that happen for you? And you may want to test God to try and see if he's really there, see if he's really true. But we have all the evidence we need. We have probably you can look back on things in your life where God has been active in your life. But we have what God did with Jesus and the resurrection and everything else and we have what we see God doing with other people. God gives us enough to, um, evidence to trust him. We can't keep trusting him. It's a failure of trust. And for Jesus he knew that he must keep trusting God. And he trusted him through the cross that he would be brought back in the resurrection. Let us not let's not test God, but trust Him in all things. Do you see how again and again Jesus looks at the lessons of the Bible, the lessons of the Old Testament particularly, and what God did for Israel in the wilderness, and He learns those lessons that ultimately it's always best to follow God, no matter how hard it hard it seems, no matter how much it seems to be going against what you bodily want to do, no matter how much it seems to be going against what um, everyone else around you seems to be doing, or what um, everyone else seems to think is a successful way to live. No matter how much it means having to trust God and not test him, it's always best to obey and follow God. And it's when you know that God is there, that God is, reliant on, that God is reliable, and you know that he will always be there for you. And you know that even though times may feel hard and tough and difficult now, God will help you. Then you're able to resist temptation and to live for him and like Jesus to be more effective for him resisting temptation is not about sausages it's about God and our relationship with him let's pray Father we thank you for Jesus we thank you for his example
and we pray that you would help us to follow it. Help us to know our Bibles, to learn the lessons of the stories within them, and to resist the pressure of the devil to go against you. Help us not to listen to our stomachs, but to your word. Help us to submit to you and not to the ways of the world around us. And help us to trust you and not test you. Amen.